Garlett is a mindset and performance expert who specializes in the art of perseverance. As a retired lieutenant colonel and fighter pilot who has faced many challenges herself, she takes lessons learned from high-performance cockpit and relates them to the challenges of life. As an entrepreneur, wife, and mother of three, she shares powerful, heartfelt stories of strength and grit. Tammy served in the U.S. Air Force for over 20 years, flying multiple aircraft to include the T-37 Tweet, T-38 Talon, A-10 Warthog, MQ-1 Predator, and MQ-9 Reaper, accumulating more than 3,000 total flying hours and over 1,500 hours of combat support time assisting and protecting troops on the ground in both Iraq and Afghanistan. She is also a graduate of the prestigious U.S. Air Force Weapons School and has a Master's of Arts in Christian Ministry. Upon retiring, she became a professional speaker and founded Athena's Voice, a speaker referral business featuring female military pilots from around the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, you do. It's funny because when I talk about perseverance, one of the things I, I like to refer to is, I mean, think about when you get in a jet and you go take off. Now you have a problem. Something goes wrong. Just like in life, things don't always go as planned. At the first sign of a problem, you just grab the ejection handle and go, I'm out. Because you can? Well, no, you don't. You're, you're kind of stuck in there, so you must persevere. So I think mm -hmm. people have a, more of a mentality of, I must persevere, assuming this goal has been something they determined was worth the effort, because that has to happen first, then you should, you know, stick it out and persevere because, you know, it, things are going to get tough. And just like in the plane, things are going to get tough. Things are going to go wrong. How are you going to deal with it? And if you're, and if you think ahead and expect some of these things to happen, when they do happen, you get less emotional and you get more mission driven and focused to, to complete the task and press on and you'll be more successful, less likely to pull that ejection handle and try and, you know, bail out. Joining the military, how did that come about for you? Is it something that you've always wanted to do? Is it something that you did because maybe family was in the military? What drew you to that? When I was in high school, I was attending college full-time my last two years, and I was really interested in the military, but I didn't know anyone in the military. In fact, in Minnesota, there isn't any military bases that I'm familiar with other than guard bases, so I hadn't even been exposed to anything. And there was a guy in one of my classes at the community college that I was going to school at my senior year who had been in the Navy. And I don't know what it was about the Navy that drew my attention, but I, I stopped him after class one day and I said, hey, um, I'm really interested in the military and I was thinking about going in the Navy. What do you think? And he stopped and he said, well, he's like, first of all, he's like, I think you should go in the Air Force. <laughs> he And his words were something like, you know, it's the cleanest, they treat their people the best. And, and at this point it's 1994 probably. And he, he said some comment, like they seem to be more advanced with, you know, women. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And I knew that I wanted to go to college. So 
ROTC was really, in my opinion, the only option because I already already had two full years of college under my belt. I wasn't going to go apply to the academy. And I really wasn't that familiar with the academy. So I went to the university admissions office at the University of Minnesota. And I said, hey, do you guys have Air Force ROTC? And they said, oh, yeah, it's, it's in that castle-like looking building back behind us. I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay. So I wandered around the building, the back of the building, and there it was. It really, it, it's called the armory and it does look like a castle. And I walked up to it like it was a bit of an actual creepy castle, which is so funny because when I opened the door, it's just a normal building like every other building on campus. And I was wandering around and on the first floor, somebody stopped me and they said, hey, you know, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm looking for Air Force ROTC. They said, oh, well, you're in luck. Air Force is the first floor, Army is the second floor, Navy's and Marines are the third floor. So I went to the office and they they gave me all this information on Air Force ROTC. And the thing that attracted me most to it, and this is kind of funny, but because I have a no quit mentality, but they said that, you know, you can try it out and if you don't like it, you can quit. And I think being a high school student, that was really appealing to me. That Not that I could quit. That wasn't the idea. It was the idea that I had choices. I wasn't stuck with anything until I really thought it through and, and had a chance to see what it was like. So I was, I decided that I would try it out the next year. I applied, I got in, I got in and I was in the Air Force ROTC program. And to be honest with you, I never once looked back because I finally felt like I found my people, my tribe. I was finally surrounded by people who wanted to do better. They had a high level of integrity. They wanted to help people. They worked really hard. And I didn't feel like I'd ever been surrounded by people like that before. And so again, not even a question in my mind, I'm, this is what I'm doing. And I was just, you know, going to be an Intel officer when people said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be an Intel officer. And, um, I went to field training, which is the air, you know, the air forces version of officer boot camp, if you will, for ROTC, it was four weeks at Lackland. And we lived in the barracks and they did the standard yelling at you, obstacle course, all that stuff, marching. Well, we were at, I went to that camp and there was a career day and there was one pilot there. There was probably 200 cadets. It was a huge camp. And there was one pilot and he happened to look at me in the audience. He said, are you going to be a pilot? And I said, no, I can't. I had, I had knee surgery. He said, oh, well, there's a waiver for pretty much everything. And that's where it started, the pilot piece of this. That's where that story started. I'd always been an adventurous kid. I mean, I was a gymnast. I loved roller coasters. I thought flying was awesome, but I didn't had never really considered it because I didn't know anyone. But when he put that, he planted that seed, I went back to the ROTC detachment and I said, I want to see about getting a waiver for my knee to be a pilot. And they said, okay. So they looked into it. And they actually found out that they had been wrong the whole time. I didn't even need a waiver. The surgery I had on my knee, my ACL reconstruction was, it was so common that I didn't even need this waiver. And so I applied to pilot training and I got picked up and it just kind of went from there. I just loved it. It was great. So when you did that, so when you, when you did that, uh, or picked like that was going to be your branch to the, you know, pilot or aviation um did you get commissioned as an officer first and then do pilot training or did you have to do the pilot training prior to being commissioned how does that work okay yeah so i was at the university of minnesota for three years 
to get my degree complete. During that time, I took ROTC classes. And then once you get your degree, you get commissioned and you've done field training and all the requirements, you'll get commissioned. So I got commissioned as a second lieutenant on June 19th of 1998. And my first assignment was actually a casual status assignment to Scott Air Force Base to a C-21 squadron where I was just kind of hanging out supporting the squadron until I could get into pilot training because there was a backup. And so April of two or April of 1999, I showed up at Laughlin Air Force Base where I started pilot training as a second lieutenant. Now, when it, so once you, once you complete your pilot training, how does the vetting go for what you're going to fly? Or is it just you're in aviation and then it just kind of luck of the draw? How does that work? No, it's not luck of the draw. It, there's a combination of things that happen. So everybody in the case for me, back when I started pilot training, everybody started in the T-37. That's now been replaced by the T-6, but at the time it was the T-37 and we all flew the T-37. And then based on your performance and your preferences, you were given an, a, the, your next aircraft assignment. So you don't have your wings yet. They, it's called track. You track select. And there's the T-38 track, which is the fighter bomber track. There was the T-1 track, which is the heavy aircraft track. There was helicopters, and at the time, there was T-44s, which would go on to fly C-130s. And so I got tracked into the fighter track and flying the T-38. So the second half of the year of pilot training is in the T-38, learning how to fly a, a fighter-type jet. And then once you complete all that training, again, it's, it's kind of a combination of performance, preference, and availability. So what happened was... They rack and stack the students, and then they stack up their preferences, and then they lay out the aircraft that they've been given for that particular class across all four pilot training bases, and then they divvy out the assignments and they give them to you. And I was assigned as a T-37 instructor pilot immediately out of pilot training. And I'll be honest, it is not what I wanted. I wanted to go, I wanted to go fly fighters. You know, I, I wanted to get out there and do it, but it was really the absolute best assignment for me. Because I was so new to the aviation world, I really was, I didn't understand a lot of it. And I was still trying to build up knowledge in the aviation world. And I was surrounded by a lot of guys, literally guys who wanted to fly since they were three. So try and play catch up and understanding what each aircraft did and what their mission was and, and all that was a little bit overwhelming. And so they could tell I didn't exactly know when I put, filled out my sheet of what I wanted. And plus I just, I love teaching. And so they made me an instructor pilot at T-37. And at first I was disappointed because not only did I not get a fighter, but I didn't get to fly in the, the T-38 fighter trainer as an instructor, which would have been cool. But I absolutely loved being a T-37 instructor because you're taking someone from being essentially not being a pilot at all, from walking off the street and you're making them a pilot because they start off not knowing anything really. I mean, they have to have some hours in like a Cessna or a Piper or whatever, but they, you teach them, I mean, they put on all this gear they've never worn before. So they're wearing a parachute and a helmet and they're strapping into the jet and they're pulling G's. You're teaching them aerobatics and formation and landings and all, low level. It was really very rewarding to see that growth. So that's what I did. And then when I was done with that assignment, kind of the same thing happened. It's called a FAPE drop. So a FAPE is a first assignment instructor pilot, which I was a T-37 FAPE. So then this drop is the assignment drop. So all of us 
FAPES that were in the same like time frame, got our assignments that came down. And again, the commander matches you in this case with, you know, whatever jets they have and your preference and your performance now as an instructor for the past three years. And I got picked up to fly the A-10, which was awesome. It was so cool. Honestly, I don't know much about the A-10 until I was looking it up before we connected to record this episode. And without fail, the image that I would see online would be the A-10s that have at the nose of it the shark teeth or shark face smile, whatever. Is that, are all of them like that? Or is that just a particular area? I, yeah, I'm only, I think there's only one particular squadron that gets the shark teeth. Okay. Yeah. And the way I describe it in, in my speech when I, is it the A-10 is a single seat attack aircraft that, you know, it's used to protect the troops on the ground. And it is, I mean, it's got tons of weapons. It's got bombs, missiles, rockets, and it's got a, it's really built around a 30 millimeter Gatlin gun. Like, oh, a Gatlin gun that holds 1150 rounds of 30 millimeter, which is, is this bullet right here. So 1150 of these rounds sit, and that's, I mean, the aircraft literally was built around that gun. And then the pilot sits in a titanium tub to protect them from enemy fire. So it's, it's pretty, yeah. So in an effort to kind of wrap my head around this and process this, you know, one of the things that we say in the military is being proficient in all your tasks and drills that you have to do. And you have this big, for you, for you A-10 pilots, you have this aircraft, like you mentioned, attached to you. With And so you, you first have to be able to fly that proficiently and then, oh, by the way, you have a Gatling gun, you have bombs, you have all this, all this firepower, and you have to do both of them proficiently at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's quite a bit going on. And coming from an, an aircraft where I was literally just instructing people how to fly... I mean, you really, and that's why that piece of it is so very important that they really understand and grasp the concept of flying where you don't strap into the jet, you strap the jet, the jet on and you become one with the jet because when you get to your next airframe, depending on what it is, you are now this, all these munitions are an extension of you. So the flying has to be second hand. I mean, second nature, you can't be thinking about that. You have to be thinking about how to fly the jet so you can best employ the weapons and ideally, in, in our case, protect those troops on the ground that we're defending. Well, being one of those soldiers, one of those troops on the ground, I think what you do is awesome. And quite frankly, well, that's pretty badass. But that's just my take on it. There's many of us out there. Yeah. I'll really interview several more, but, but thank you. That's yeah. why it's funny. There was some of the students who'd say, well, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't want to be alone. I want to work with a crew. And I mean, I get that there's some people who want to be in charge of a crew and work with people in the same aircraft. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I love people too, to be quite frank. And, but I think it's awesome to be part of a, like a team in the air. So it's, mm -hmm. so here we are flying formation with multiple aircraft. It's, 
it, the days that it was literally just me solo in my plane going somewhere alone, those were the worst flights. You know, I mean, because even though I might be in the air by myself in the plane, there's another aircraft right, right next to me often. Mm -hmm. And I can talk to them on the one of the five radios we had, you know, mm -hmm. so you were never really alone. And that's what I that's what I want people to remember when they think about, oh, I don't want to fly a single seat because I don't I don't want to be alone. Well, no, you're not really. You know, it seems like that's just a lot of pressure to put on one person like a lot of weight that the success or failure of that mission is just on you, the pilot, and you're the only one in the cockpit, so it's not like you can point your finger at anybody else. I mean, not that you would do that, but just a lot of weight and pressure. But then, I guess kind of like on a sports team, um, the success of a game is the quarterback or the pitcher or whoever that key, the point guard, whoever that key person is on that team. Roger that. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be very honest to say that sometimes I struggled with, with the credit I was given when I knew that there was so much more behind the fact that I was, I was the one operating it. That was, I mean, that, that was hard for me just because I know that there's so much effort and work and people who don't get the credit for things that they do. So I, I would do my best to try and always, you know, have a perspective, like working with the maintainers. I got in the jet and something went wrong. You know, this it won't start right or something's different. My instant reaction wasn't to go, hey, chief, something's wrong. I mean, yeah, that would be wrong. But as far, I mean, that, that would be true. Something would maybe still be wrong. But the, what I'm getting at is that I would say, hey, chief, something's not working right up here it, it's probably some switch that i'm pushing wrong or because i i wanted to make sure that i cleared myself first like it was wasn't an, a switch error on my part because you don't want the, the crew chief to come up and be like uh yeah it's because you have to turn it on you know and and the other thing is i think it increased that you know made that relationship a little bit better because it was and, important to me that they knew that i valued them and their mm -hmm. knowledge and that i made mistakes and i make mistakes just like everyone else does yeah. So you're right. I mean, there's so much more to that. When I, there's, you know, there's times I've given a talk about how everyone matters. And when I walk in, I'll, I'll, I have a model car that is taken apart. It's not put together yet. One of those mm -hmm. you, your kid can put together and I mm -hmm. give everybody a piece. And towards the end, I say, Hey, you know, what piece do you have? You raise your hand if you think you have the coolest piece, the most important piece. You know, you got the kid who raises his hand or, you know, whoever's sitting there is steering wheel. I got this steering wheel. This is the best. Or I, you know, I have a tire, whatever it might be, or the logo on the front of the car. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And then you got someone who has this tiny little screw and they don't raise their hand. Right. But the bottom line is, is that every piece matters. It does. Without that screw, that car wouldn't work. So, you know, just because the driver gets all the credit doesn't mean that's where the credit is due. And I, I want people to know that I understand that as an aviator. That reminds me of when I worked with the youth. I would use Mr. Potato Head with that, to make that same point. And I would ask them, which part of the body would you want to be? And of course, everybody would want to be the head, the eyes, the mouth, the ears, and nobody picked the feet. And I said, why not? Why didn't anybody want to be the feet? Well, because you're on the bottom. 
Nobody sees you. But quite frankly, if you don't have the feet, you can't. You do. And I, th I think that a lot of times there's a couple of reasons I believe that people don't persevere and meet their goals, even though they really desire to. First of all, I think you have to make sure you do a goal setting plan. Like, is this really truly a goal that I want and I'm willing to deal with the challenges to get through? That's, that's the first part of it. But the second part of it is what are those challenges going to be? Can I predict at least a few of them? So as pilots, when we brief, we have the, we have, here's our big plan. Here's our, our main objective. Here are some sub objectives that will help us meet the main objective. And this is what we're going to do. And then we end with here's, you know, emergency of the day that we're going to talk about. And here's some what ifs and we haven't read. What if I lose, what if my engine fails on me? What if I get shot at? What if the weather rolls in? You can't what if everything, but you should never what if nothing. So when you have a plan and you want to, you decide that you're going to choose this goal and you're going to persevere and you want to do it, you have to have those options for when things go wrong. For example, and I, this is a parenting example, but I think you can understand even if you don't have kids, is that as a parent, when my child does something, they do X. My plan is I'm going to do what, you know, I'm going to do A first. If that stuff doesn't work, I'm going to do B. And then I'm going to do C, you know, let's say they don't clean up their room. What's the, what's the step plan I'm going to do? The problems always come in and the emotions burst. And I want to just run away when I'd never thought of what I'm going to do. I just have, I have a, and then nothing. So a doesn't work. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? That's when I say, you know, that's why I want to bail out. Right. I want to pull that ejection handle and forget this. Mm -hmm. But remember in the aircraft, you know, if you use that aircraft analogy, we were talking about you're in the aircraft and if you pull that ejection handle, yeah, you might get out of the situation, but it's going to cause a lot bigger problems, especially if that aircraft was something you could save. If it wasn't, you know, if it was something you just need to flip a switch or, you know, shut down the hydraulics on one side or whatever it might be and you could land it fine. You know, obviously there's going to be it's going to be tough, but we have to go from a circumstantial mentality and get away from the circumstantial mindset, like, and just get stuck in where we're at and look bigger and think about where are we going? What's the mission? We need to be mission focused and not circumstance focused. And those, those putting those things together will help people persevere, you know, plan, make sure this is a goal you want. And then you have some contingencies for if, when things go wrong, and then, you know, you got it. Then when it comes up, you deal with it. You know that you expect the trouble. And if you expect the trouble, it's going to be much easier to handle it. When, when I was teaching in the T-37 and the T-38 at the end of my career, we do something called stand-ups with the students. We would sit them down in a room. They're all sitting at, they're all sitting at attention with their checklists ready to go. And we would give them a scenario. We would say, okay, it's uh, the wind's 130 at 10. You're at you're in on runway one, three, your takeoff is nine o'clock in the morning. You're on initial takeoff. You get a red light in the fire handle at 73 knots. You have the aircraft, Lieutenant so-and-so, and they have to stand up in front of everyone. And they have to say, Roger, I have the aircraft. I'm going to maintain your, I'm going to maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take the proper actions and land as soon as conditions permit. I'm going to maintain aircraft control by, and they spill out the things they're going to do. 
I'm going to analyze the situation. Uh, Ma'am, what's the weather? And then you could pause and ask these questions. But the idea is that now if they get into a situation like that or similar to that, they have processed through it and they're not going to overreact. And I believe that this applies to life too, because our emotions matter, but your emotions cannot be the driver. It causes a lot of problems. I mean, and I, I talk in my speech about processing emotions. You don't just shove them down either. You, you have to process through them, but you do that. And then you get back to what your focus truly is on because it's a struggle. It's a, okay. it's a constant struggle still to this day, you know, and it, it has to do with something many of us struggle with imposter syndrome. It was a word that I didn't even know. I didn't even know there was a thing until too, way too late in my career. Had I known that much earlier, I would have thought, okay, I am, no, I am more normal. It's, I have doubts. I wonder if I'm supposed to be here. Um, am I here because of luck or good timing or manipulation? That's the definition of imposter syndrome, right? And you know, you always wonder that, like, oh, I must have gotten lucky. Or I knew though, and I knew in my core that I worked. I mean, I'm not. I I would never say that I'm a smart, I'm a super smart person. Obviously I have a level of intelligence to get where I've gotten, but I work really, really, really hard. And that sometimes made it difficult when those around me didn't seem to be working as hard as me. It just came naturally to them. And that was a struggle. But you know, the interesting thing that I learned, especially over the 20 years in fighter squadrons is that as a group, people tend to not share their weaknesses. You know, they'll speak up when something they know for sure and they're confident about. Um, but individually, when I spoke to both men and women on a one-on-one -on -one basis, there was a lot of people who felt exactly like I did. Like they questioned things, they made mistakes. Like I, I was beating myself up once over this emergency that I didn't, that I handled properly, but I didn't analyze correctly, if that makes sense. Like I managed the plane, I did all the right steps, but I didn't actually understand what was causing the problem. And I got really upset with myself. And I, I was like, I can't believe I did this. And then when I said that individually to people, a lot of other pilots were saying to me, oh, Tammy, that's nothing. I did this. I did that. And I was like, whoa. And not that I, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, putting me above them or anything. That wasn't what it was about. It was more about, wow. I, okay. It's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. It's how you handle that mistake and move forward that matters. And people say that all the time, right? You've heard that before, but you got it. If you put it, if you just say it like words on a page, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that looks great. But putting it into life and making it a reality just makes it sink in so much more. And, and sharing circumstances and stories of things where these, this has actually happened, you know, where I know very successful, badass pilots that struggle with confidence. And I would have never thought that. And they tell me, yeah, I, I feel the same way. So it's not, everybody has it. We all struggle. And it's so interesting is I think I told you this when we were doing the pre-recording call. A lot of times when people hear me say that, they're like, wait, what? You're a fighter pilot and you struggle with confidence? Mm -hmm. I think I was one of the ones that said that to you. Absolutely, I do. It's what you do with it that makes the difference. You know, yeah, I struggle. You can't be brave if you don't have fear, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony Blower talks about that. You know, that comparison trap and uh, imposter syndrome is just such an ugly thing. 
And we get so easy to get caught up in it, too. You know, it's like uh, on and your onstage presence when you're presenting yourself and presenting a topic or a character or whatever the case may be. And then I'm sitting in the audience comparing, knowing what my mistakes are, my shortcomings are, comparing my shortcomings to what you're presenting on stage, to your strengths and your, and your um, the things you do well. And I'm comparing the things that you do well on stage to my mistakes. And when I do that, I set myself up for failure. But I don't know what your life is like backstage. I don't know what's going on at home. I don't know what your struggles are, what you battle. I just know what I see with you on stage presenting. Yeah, you know, I can't remember. I'll have to look up where I, where I heard this. But I've heard it described, in my opinion, in a really good way, is you're comparing your backstage to my front stage. And that's not... That's not comparable. Yes, you can yes, do that. that. It, I mean, it, right. it doesn't work, and that's not fair right. to you. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a backstage, right. and that's what, and then that's a, no. right. Um, so it really is a matter, and, and yes, I was one of those people you were talking about when you and I spoke ahead of time. I was like, "Wait, really? You struggle with cutting? No, not really," because I was comparing my struggle with with self low self confidence to. What I that what I saw on your front stage, so and that's just not it's not realistic. Yeah, there's a part in my speech where I'm talking about this lack of confidence and struggle, and I and I go wait, cut, cut. Y'all are thinking, are thinking, wait, what? There's this is a fighter pilot who's struggling with confidence. <laughs> Haven't you heard the joke that how do you know when a fighter pilot's in the room? Oh, they'll tell you. <laughs> they'll tell you. <laughs> but the truth is that you know. Every it doesn't matter what we put. I mean, what people put on the outside. I mean, I can walk around confident too. When I was in, when I was an instructor pilot, believe me, I when I put on my uniform and walked through those doors, I carried myself differently because I knew I had to. It didn't mean though that I wouldn't be vulnerable in front of people at the right time. But you know, you walk through with your your head high and your shoulders broad. And people are like, whoa, she doesn't struggle with any confidence. Well, you know, and, and then when they get behind the doors and you're debriefing and you're talking about what went wrong, what went right, and I share stories that I struggled here, I struggled there, it makes it much more real to them and makes the goal they're going for seem much more achievable. So, you know, there's... Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I'll... I'll be very honest to say that sometimes I struggled with, with the credit I was given when I knew that there was so much more behind the fact that I was, I was the one operating it. That was, I mean, that, that was hard for me just because I know that there's so much effort and work and people who don't get the credit for things that they do. So I, I would do my best to try and always, you know, have a perspective, like working with the maintainers. I got in the jet and something went wrong you know, this, it won't start right or something's different. My instant reaction wasn't to go, hey, chief, something's wrong. I mean, yeah, that would be wrong. But as far, I mean, that, that would be true. Something would maybe still be wrong. But the, what I'm getting at is that I would say, hey, chief, something's not working right up here. It, it's probably some switch that I'm pushing wrong or because I, I wanted to make sure that I cleared myself first. Like it was 
wasn't an, a switch error on my part because you don't want the, the cruise ship to come up and be like, uh, yeah, it's because you have to turn it on, you know. And and the other thing is, I think it increased that, you know, made that relationship a little bit better because it was and... important to me that they knew that I valued them and their mm-hmm. knowledge and that I made mistakes and I make mistakes just like everyone else does. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, there's so much more to that. When I, there's, you know, there's times I've given a talk about how every matters. And when I walk in, I'll, I'll, I have a model car that is taken apart. It's not put together yet. One of those mm-hmm. your kid can put together and they mm-hmm. can give everybody a piece. And towards the end, I say, Hey, you know, what piece do you have? You raise your hand. If you think you have the coolest piece, the most important piece, you know, you got the kid who raises in or, you know, whoever's sitting there is steering wheel. I got this steering wheel. This is the best. Or I, you know, I have a tire, whatever it might be, or the logo on the front of the car. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And then you got someone who has this tiny little screw and they don't raise their hand. Right. But the bottom line is, is that every piece matters. It does. Without that screw, that car wouldn't work. So, you know, just because the driver gets all the credit doesn't mean that's where the credit is due. And I, I want people to know that I understand that as an aviator. That reminds me of when I worked with the youth. I would use Mr. Potato Head with that to make that same point. And I would ask them, which part of the body would you want to be? And of course, everybody would want to be the head, the eyes, the mouth, the ears. And nobody picked the feet. And I said, why not? Why didn't anybody want to be the feet? Well, because you're on the bottom. Nobody sees you. But quite frankly, if you don't have the feet, you can't. You do. And I I think that a lot of times... There's a couple of reasons I believe that people don't persevere and meet their goals, even though they really desire to. First of all, I think you have to make sure you do a goal setting plan. Like, is this really truly a goal that I want and I'm willing to deal with the challenges to get through? That's that's the first part of it. But the second part of it is, what are those challenges going to be? Can I predict at least a few of them? So as pilots, when we brief, we have the we have here's our big plan here's our, our main objective here are some sub objectives that will help us meet the main objective and this is what we're going to do and then we end with here's you know emergency of the day that we're going to talk about and here's some what ifs and we haven't read what if i what if my engine fails on me what if i get shot at what if the weather rolls in you can't what if everything but you should never what if nothing so when you have a plan and you want to, you decide that you're going to choose this goal and you're going to persevere and you want to do it, you have to have those options for when things go wrong. For example, and I, this is a parenting example, but I think you can understand even if you don't have kids, is that as a parent, when my child does something, they do X. My plan is I'm going to do what, you know, I'm going to do A first. If that stuff doesn't work, I'm going to do B. And then I'm going to do C, you know, let's say they don't clean up their room. What's the, what's the step plan I'm going to do? The problems always come in and the emotions burst. And I want to just run away when I'd never thought of what I'm going to do. I just have, I have a, and then nothing. So A doesn't work. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? That's when I say, you know, that's why I want to bail out. Right. I want to pull that ejection handle and forget this. Mm-hmm. But remember in the aircraft, you know, if you use that aircraft analogy, we were talking about you're in the aircraft and 
if you pull that ejection handle, yeah, you might get out of the situation, but it's going to cause a lot bigger problems, especially if that aircraft was something you could save. If it wasn't, you know, if it was something you just needed to flip a switch or, you know, shut down the hydraulics on one side or whatever it might be, and you could land it fine. You know, obviously there's going to be, it's going to be tough, but we have to go from a circumstantial mentality and get away from the circumstantial mindset, like, and just get stuck in where we're at and look bigger and think about where are we going? What's the mission? You need to be mission focused and not circumstance focused. And those, those putting those things together will help people persevere, you know, plan, make sure this is a goal you want. And then you have some contingencies for if, when things go wrong and then, you know, you got it. Then when it comes up, you deal with it. You know that you expect the trouble. And if you expect the trouble, it's going to be much easier to handle it. When, when I was teaching in the T-37 and the T-30 at the end of my career, we do something called stand-ups with the students. We would sit them down in a room. They're all sitting at, they're all sitting at attention with their checklists ready to go. And we would give them a scenario. We would say, okay, it's uh, the wind's one, three, zero at 10. You're one, you're in on runway one, three. Your takeoff is nine o'clock in the morning. You're on initial takeoff. You get a red light in the fire handle at 73 knots. You have the aircraft, Lieutenant so-and-so, and they have to stand up in front of everyone and they have to say, Roger, I have the aircraft. I'm going to maintain aircraft. I'm going to maintain aircraft control. Analyze the situation. Take the proper actions and land as soon as conditions permit. I'm going to maintain aircraft control. Bye. And they spill out the things they're going to do. I'm going to analyze the situation. Uh, Ma'am, what's the weather? And then you could pause and ask these questions. But the idea is that now, if they get into a situation like that or similar to that, they have processed through it, and they're not going to overreact. And I believe that this applies to life too, because our emotions matter, but your emotions cannot be the driver. It causes a lot of problems. I mean, and I, I talk in my speech about processing emotions. You don't just shove them down either. You, you have to process through them, but you do that. And then you get back to what your focus truly is on because it's a struggle. It's a, okay. it's a constant struggle still to this day, you know, and it, it has to do with something many of us struggle with, imposter syndrome. It was a word that I didn't even know. I didn't even know there was a thing until too, way too late in my career. Had I known that much earlier, I would have thought, okay, I am, no, I am more normal. It's, I have doubts. I wonder if I'm supposed to be here. Um, am I here because of luck or good timing or manipulation? That's the definition of imposter syndrome, right? And you know, you always wonder that, like, oh, I must have gotten lucky. Or I knew, though, and I knew in my core that I worked. I mean, I'm not, I, I would never say that I'm the smart, I'm super smart person. Obviously, I have a level of intelligence to get where I've gotten, but I work really, really, really hard. And that sometimes made it difficult when those around me didn't seem to be working as hard as me. It just came naturally to them. And that was a struggle. But, you know, the interesting thing that I learned, especially over the 20 years in fighter squadrons, is that as a group, people tend to not share their weaknesses. You know, they'll speak up when something they know for sure and they're confident about. Um, but individually, when I spoke to both men and women on a one-on-one -on -one basis, there was a lot of people who felt exactly like I did. Like they questioned things. They made mistakes. Like I... I was beating myself up once over this emergency that I didn't, that I handled properly, but I didn't analyze correctly. 
if that makes sense. Like I managed the plane, I did all the right steps, but I didn't actually understand what was causing the problem. And I got really upset with myself. And I, I was like, I can't believe I did this. And then when I said that individually to people, a lot of other pilots were saying to me, oh, Tammy, that's nothing. I did this. I did that. And I was like, whoa. And not that I, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, putting me above them or anything. That wasn't what it was about. It was more about, wow. I, okay. It's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. It's how you handle that mistake and move forward that matters. And people say that all the time, right? You've heard that before, but you got it. If you put it, if you just say it like words on a page, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that looks great. But putting it into life and making it a reality just makes it sink in so much more. And, and sharing circumstances and stories of things where these this has actually happened, you know, where I know very successful, badass pilots that struggle with confidence. And I would have never thought that. And they tell me, yeah, I, I feel the same way. So it's not, everybody has it. We all struggle. And it's so interesting is I think I told you this when we were doing the pre-recording call. A lot of times when people hear me say that, they're like, wait, what? You're a fighter pilot and you struggle with confidence? Mm -hmm. I think I was one of the ones that said that to you. Absolutely, I do. It's what you do with it that makes the difference. You know, yeah, I struggle. You can't be brave if you don't have fear, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony Blower talks about that. You know, that comparison trap and uh, imposter syndrome is just such an ugly thing. And we get so easy to get caught up in it, too. You know, it's like... Uh, on and your on-stage presence when you're presenting yourself and presenting a topic or a character or whatever the case may be and then I'm sitting in the audience comparing knowing what my mistakes are my shortcomings are comparing my shortcomings to what you're presenting on stage to your strengths and your and your um the things you do well and I'm comparing the things that you do well on stage to my mistakes. And when I do that, I set myself up for failure. But I don't know what your life is like backstage. I don't know what's going on at home. I don't know what your struggles are, what you battle. I just know what I see with you on stage presenting. Yeah, you know, I can't remember. I'll have to look up where I, where I heard this, but... I've heard it described, in my opinion, in a really good way, is you're comparing your backstage to my front stage. And that's not, that's not comparable. Yes. You can yes, do that. that. It, I mean, it, right. it doesn't work. And that's not fair right. to you. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a backstage. Right. And that's, and then, that's, you know, right. so it really is a matter. And, and yes, I was one of those people you were talking about when you and I spoke ahead of time, I was like, Wait, really? You struggle with cutting? No, not really. Because I was comparing my struggle with, with self, low self-confidence to what I, that, what I saw on your front stage. So, and that's just not, it's not realistic. Yeah, there's a part in my speech where I'm talking about this lack of confidence and struggle. And I, and I go, wait, cut, cut. Y'all are thinking, they're thinking, wait, what? There's this is a fighter pilot who's struggling with confidence. <laughs> Haven't you heard the joke that how do you know when a fighter pilot's in the room? Oh, well, they'll tell you. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> They'll tell you. But the truth is that, you know, every it doesn't matter what we put, I mean, what people put on the outside. I mean, I can walk around confident too. When I was, a, when I was an instructor pilot, believe me, I when I put on my uniform and walked through those doors, I carried myself differently because I knew I had to. It didn't mean though that I wouldn't be vulnerable in front of people at the right time. But you know, you walk through with your your head high and your shoulders broad and people are like, whoa, she doesn't struggle with any confidence. Well, you know, and, and then when they get behind the doors and you're debriefing and you're talking about what went wrong, what went right, and I share stories that I struggled here, I struggled there, it makes it much more real to them and makes the goal they're going for seem much more achievable. So, you know, there's... Mm -hmm. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you.